I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a story about Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, uh, four siblings who uh, had to spend some time in the country during World War II, and they find this magic wardrobe, and they go into the wardrobe, and they're magically transported to the world known as Narnia. And the world of Narnia is now under the spell of the White Witch. Uh, and so the, the kids are kind of exploring and trying to figure out this new and frightening world that they're a part of. Well, early on in the story, uh, they come across Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, uh, who are still faithful to the King Aslan and begins to explain to them everything that's going on. And, and it's in that part of the story that I think has one of the greatest lines of all the Chronicles of Narnia. And so as the kids are starting to talk about, well, who is this Aslan? What is he like? Uh, Lucy, the little girl, talks about how she, she's not sure if she would be afraid or not or what that would be like. And, and this is how Mr. Beaver responds. He says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good, and he is the king, I tell you. That line, that phrase there, he isn't safe, I think can be a little bit shocking to us as Christians because we think, what do you mean God is not safe? Isn't God good? Well, yes, that's exactly what Mr. Beaver just said. But this idea that God is safe, we kind of have to think a little bit. And I think as we, we dive into that idea, it, and we, we kind of flush that out of what that actually means, and we really get deep into that, we kind of understand what Mr. Beaver meant when he said that God isn't safe. Because see, for a lot of us, we take God very casually at times, don't we? Uh, we, we definitely know the, the world can be very flippant towards God. Uh, it can be a very nonchalant, casual attitude towards God. That, that God is this almighty being uh, that is just designed to give us whatever we want, whenever we want. He's this cosmic Barney or this cosmic Santa Claus is what God is. And then when God doesn't give us what we want, then we either say, well, then God is not good or God doesn't exist. That's the way that we treat God. Or what then ends up happening sometimes uh, is the idea that perhaps that when we make mistakes, we then turn to God and we go, well, isn't God all loving? And God will just kind of gloss over our sins and everything will be fine and he'll forgive us and it's not a big deal. And so then one day God will embrace all of us in the heavenly clouds and we'll all be flying around with our wings and playing our harps, right? That's a lot of times how we treat who God is. And we can be very dismissive of him. And as I said, very just nonchalant as if we don't really understand who God truly is. Well, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about this idea of fear and, and what we shouldn't fear, right? You know, there's this general sense that fear can grip and, and get a hold of our lives. Uh, and, and we often fear man because what man might do to us. But we've said that we shouldn't fear man because man can't take our soul. And when the world is pushing in on us, we shouldn't be fearful either. But we should get on our knees and pray because there is an almighty, powerful God that can handle anything that comes our way.
Well, I want us to continue this discussion about fear, but I want us to understand there is a healthy fear. There is a very good fear of God, and that's what I want, to, that's what I want us to understand today. What does it mean to fear God? And, and for fearing God, a lot of that comes in our understanding of who really God is. Yes, God is good. But I also want us to understand, oh, God is not safe in that regards that Mr. Beaver had said. Um, so I'm going to be going out of a couple of different passages today. Uh, but in the book of Proverbs, it's all about gaining wisdom. Okay? And the first nine chapters are really an introduction to the book of Proverbs. And a lot of Proverbs has these little short, pithy statements, right? Uh, something like, sluggards do not plow in season, so at harvest time they look but find nothing. The mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snail to their very lives. That's what we mean. That's what tons of Proverbs is. It's just these little short statements of wisdom. Well, as I said, the first nine chapters are really an introduction to this. And so the first seven he lays out, this is why we're gaining knowledge. And in verse seven, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that's, that's chapter one, verse seven. And then the rest of that from, from 1-8 all the way through the end of chapter nine, what you have is really a letter between a father to his son. And he's imploring his son. He says, I want you to get wisdom. I, I want you to understand how valuable and how important this wisdom is. And so he's going through all of these different reasons. And when he gets to the end, he lays it out. And he says, this is my final say here, son. He says, listen, there are two women. There is one of wisdom and there is one of folly. And both of them are calling you into their house. Both of them have prepared a meal for you. Both of them are offering you something. And one of them, though, is offering you life. And the other one is offering death. And so in Proverbs 9.10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Son, if you want to understand this world, if you, if you want to understand what's right and to make the right decisions, you must start with the fear of God. Now, this passage alone doesn't really tell us exactly what that fear is. He's just laying out where wisdom begins. And so what I want to do is help us really understand what does it mean then to fear God? Okay? How do we work through that when we look at the lens of Scripture? Now, in a very general sense, when we talk about fear in the Bible... This is not like a fear, like I'm cowering that somebody's going to hurt me or hit me. But it's this idea of reverence and awe and adoration, that there's a deep sense of understanding and respect. It's kind of like I often equate it to in the Middle Ages, when you had a very benevolent and kind king. Right? The king was kind, but everybody understood that that king had absolute power in his kingdom to do whatever he desired. Well, back in the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, and Zacharias, uh, Zacharias Ursinus were both German theologians, and they spoke about this idea of fearing God. And they said there's servile fear and filial fear. Okay? And they talk about the difference between the two. And servile fear is this idea that it's forced. There's this extrinsic fear that is upon you. Uh, and he said this type of fear is what braids hatred. 
And on the flip side, the, the filial fear, it's intrinsic, that, that I'm, I'm afraid within myself for a certain reason. But that fear is because it's born out of love, right? It's a good sense of fear. Uh, servial fear is, is, is the sense that I'm a prisoner and I don't want to be tortured and I want the pain to stop, right? That somebody is kind of hurting me. On the flip side, filial fear is the idea that, like, I'm a son, part of this family, and, and, and that sense of fear then says, I don't want to let down my father. I, I don't want to offend him or any sort of the way. And we get this idea then with servile fear that, that when I'm aware of my sins, I don't care that I disappoint God. It doesn't bother me because I'm so angry and I'm so mad at what goes on. And so as a result, our condemnation will be at hand. Where filial fear on the other side says that um, I hate when I become aware of my sin because I understand how it causes my father to be disappointed and I don't want to disappoint my father. And people that have that sense of fear are the ones that have salvation at hand because of their understanding of their sins and understanding of who God is. R.C. Sproul says fear of God is a respect of the highest magnitude. Okay, so, so when we talk about fear, it's this idea that it's a love of God because I know who God is in understanding in relation to myself. And as a result of that fear, I tremble in the quake of God's presence because I understand that I'm undeserving and, and, and un, just unneeded to have God's love in my life, but he gives it to me anyway. Okay, that's, that's what we mean when we talk about the sense of fear. But I want to continue to dive a little bit more and take a look at three epics of history, three periods of history to really grasp why is it that we should fear God on this level. That in one regards we should tremble and quake and on the other regards we should get on our knees and worship him. So I'm going to start in the beginning and I'm going to start with Genesis 1. We've all read this before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. We often use the word in Latin there, ex nihilo, meaning complete emptiness. There is nothing. Okay? So, so when God creates the world... There is absolutely nothing that exists. There are no building blocks. There are no molecules. There are no atoms. There are no Lincoln Logs or Duplos or Legos. There is nothing. And then God speaks, and the world is created. And when God creates that world, he lays the vastness of the entire universe. He sets the boundaries of earth when he speaks in creation. He establishes the laws of science. He dictates how we go from light to day and day to, to darkness uh, and, and how we have the changing of the seasons. And when God chose to speak, he creates the sense of humanity. He creates the sense of morality and the sense of relationships by developing both man and woman. And when God chooses to, God breathes in life into Adam and Adam comes alive. That's what happens at the beginning of creation. And so God creates then this world that is all completely designed 
to function in the way that sustains life for you and for me. Our Earth has been set up in this perfect pattern of orbit, that it's been around for thousands of years, that by the grace of God, gravity has continued to hold Earth in its place as it travels around the sun and every other planet. And if our world was tilted, they say, just a half a degree one way or a half a degree the other way on its axis, our world would either be too cold or we would burn up and die. A half a degree. And God has maintained that through the thousands of years that this world has been around and creation existed. And so when God spoke from the smallest molecule and he speaks to the largest mountain and he speaks from the, the slowest animal to the fastest speed of light, things happen. And I speak all the time to my kids. A lot of times nothing happens. Right? But when God speaks, it happens. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17 and he's talking to him about this child that he's going to have, and he refers to himself as El Shaddai, the Almighty God, well, Sarah hears this and Sarah actually laughs at God. And God says in Genesis 18, he says, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? You laugh that I, that I can't cause you to have a baby in your old age? He said, don't you get it? I can do anything. Look at this world that you were living in. So when we understand that knowledge of the infinite power of God, that God creates whenever he desires to, that should give us both a caution and a comfort. Because it's a, it, it's a, it's a caution in the sense that we are completely and 100% dependent our very lives on the hand of God. That at any moment, God could choose to do anything different in our lives or at his mercy. Our very existence in the physical realm is all dependent on God. The food that we get and the water that we drink all comes from the Lord. But this is also a comfort. Because in the very same token, God said, I'm going to create and sustain life to maintain a relationship with not you just as each other, but also between you and me. That I'm sustaining a world so you can live and enjoy the pleasure of what I've created. Back in 1968, on December 24th, we had our first manned space travel around the moon. So we, we've got a couple guys that are going to go around the moon, and a couple weeks before... One of the people came up to, to the astronaut and said, you know, and here, here's actually what he said. He said, we figure more people will be listening to your voice than that of man in history. So we want you to say something appropriate. They said, everybody's going to be listening and everybody's going to be watching. You will have the intention of the entire ears all around the world. And we want you to say the most appropriate thing that you can think of. And so the astronauts thought, and they talked, and finally somebody suggested to one of the astronauts what should be done. And so if you remember that picture where the Earth is coming up over the horizon of the moon, what did they do? 
they read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the astronauts said, we could not find anything more perfect as we stared at the bleakness of the moon and were able to turn and to stare at the beauty of earth. Why do we fear God? Because in God's goodness, he's given us the beauty of his creation, including us. But we also fear God because we are his creation, that God at any moment can choose to do whatever he wants on this world. So, so that's the first part. So now let me, let me hop to the end uh, of history here. Um, so John, the Apostle John, is has been cast off to the island of Patmos, uh, and he has this vision. So it's about 95 AD, so, so Christ is, has been put in the grave, he's been resurrected, kind of the, the church is starting to expand, and, and John has this vision. And it's a vision of the final triumph. It's the vision of the end times of what's going to happen. Now, now this vision has really been a prophetic, prophetic sense all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so there's nothing new that John is necessarily saying except giving the details of what it's going to look like. But the Old Testament prophets have been saying for a long time, God is going to come back and he's going to rule this world. and He's going to rule this kingdom. And we have there in Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, so Daniel is saying, there will come a king. There will come a kingdom that will destroy every earthly kingdom that exists, who will establish his reign. And so what John sees is simply the unfolding of what Daniel said. And in Revelation 14:7, an angel said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. You are to fear God because judgment is at hand. And then a little bit later in Revelation 19, 11 through 21, it says this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on the white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice and, and the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people. Free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on his horse and on his army. 
But the beast was captured with a false prophet and performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with those signs, he deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword, and they came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. God shows up in the end to do judgment to the nations that have rejected him. And those who stand against God are going to find his wrath. But praise be to God for the saints that have accepted Christ and stand amongst God's army. And then in chapter 20, he goes on a little bit more. And then he says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Back in 1741, Jonathan Edwards does one of his most popular sermons called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've never had a chance to read it, I would strongly encourage you to go home and read this sermon. But he starts with Deuteronomy 32, and he talks about the, the unbelieving Israelites and how they're starting to backslide. And he says, their foot should slide in due time. And he says, listen, these Israelites are like walking on the edge of a cliff. And any moment, they're going to slip off and they're going to fall and plummet to their death. Because they're walking that fine line of, uh, of, of rejecting God and loving this world and instead of embracing who God is. And then Jonathan Edwards transitions a little bit more. And he says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And he goes on later and he says, O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much as against you as many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Consider here more particularly. He says, listen, it's like this. It's like we're a spider that's dangling by a thread from the hand of God, that's hanging over the pits of hell. And God is the only thing that keeps that spider, that keeps us from falling into that pit of hell. 
And what does the world do? The world looks at God and it condemns God and it argues against God and it judges God and it says God doesn't exist while the whole time God is saying, don't you get it? The only thing that's keeping you out of my wrath is me. The world does not take God seriously. The judgment of our souls lies in the hands of an infinite and all-powerful God. And the world is constantly spitting in his face. So when we think about why do we fear God? Because God has power over my soul. God holds the destiny in his hand of what he chooses to do. At any moment, God can choose to do whatever he wants. At any moment, the rivers could dry up, the sun could not shine, or the oxygen could be snuffed out of this world, and my life could be taken at any moment that God chooses. So instead of being mad at God for not getting what we don't, what we, for being mad at God for not getting what we want, perhaps we should be thankful to God that he hasn't given us what we've deserved. That's why we fear God. Complete dependence upon God and the very just judgment of our souls lies in his hands. Now let me go back to the middle of history, though. Because, again, that's one picture of who God is. And it's a true picture and characteristic of God. But it's, the, it's not a complete picture of who God is. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, in love, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God set time from the very beginning and has told us what is going to happen. And everything in between, God has been orchestrating for just that perfect moment 
When he said, now is the time that I'm going to send the Savior. Now is the time that I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. Now is the time for him to live and serve and minister and to die and to be resurrected in this world. And it is through Christ that we find the forgiveness of our sins. It is through Christ that we have this redemption. And it's the Holy Spirit that is given to us that testifies on our behalf that we are the children of God. And we were designed for all of eternity. God established to conform us to his will. To to have us become like his son, Jesus Christ, all the while knowing and understanding we are never deserving of his love. Second Peter 3, 7. He says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it done will be laid bare. And so this is what God is saying to us. God is saying, again, I'm an infinite and all-powerful God, but I sent my son onto the cross, and I am pleading with you. I, I am calling you to look at the cross. I am calling you to look at my son, and I am calling you to enter into relationship with him, to find forgiveness for the sins that you have done. And we have to remember, when did God choose to send his son? We're told God came in our state of sin. God came to us in our own filth, in our own junk, in our own mess. And he said, even when you don't love me, I'm going to love you. Show you how much I love you by giving you my son as a sacrifice On the cross. And so as we hang dangling from God's hand. And at any moment God can let that go. And we curse God and we get mad at God. God is simply saying don't you get it. I don't want you to fall into the pits of hell. Embrace my son Jesus Christ. Find him. Find forgiveness. I'm pleading with you. I'm I'm waiting every possible moment I can. Because I don't want you to be lost. That is why we fear God. Because again, in one sense, God is the infinite, almighty God who has all control and all power, who sustains my very life. And at this very moment as I speak, I am only alive by the graces of God. And in the same beautiful moment, 
God expresses his deepest love and compassion and care for us. And he says, I sacrificially gave you my son to die for you because I don't want you to spend eternity without me. When you read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's harsh. It's heavy. But but you have to read it all the way through. Because Jonathan Edwards knew the God that he was talking about. And at the, and at the very end, he, he says this. He says, And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. And stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to fear God the way that we should. We have an opportunity to confess our sins, to repent to a holy God, and to enter into that eternal relationship with us. We have the opportunity right now to know that there is a Father in heaven who wants the best for us and loves us and is going to take care of us. We have this opportunity right now if we are willing to get on our knees and repent to who that God is. Because when we understand who that God is of everything we just talked about and we understand the conditions of our sins and how we deserve none of that, That is why I fear God. And when we fear God, it will save your life. Let's pray. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we demand of you. Forgive us when we fail to remember and recognize. God, we are but a vapor in this world. We are but a speck, a dot in time. Lord, forgive us when we strut and pride our ways before you as if somehow you are to kneel before us. And Lord, at the very same token, as I speak of forgiveness, God, we praise you. Because when we understand who you are, Lord, how you loved us despite of our own undeserving. Lord, you loved us beyond all measure. And you are a powerful God that is not out to get us, but you are an almighty God that has come to to save us. Lord, may we go in that understanding of fear. May we wrestle with that in our hearts and minds today. Let us not lay our our heads on the pillow tonight without questioning where we are before you and again remembering our very humble stance before you, Lord. Thank you, and we praise you. Amen.